Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello, and welcome to Red Run Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week I explore a case, the victims, the facts, and a mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, but some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. For a while now, I've been wanting to do an episode on a female killer. But the trouble for me is that most women killers just don't seem that interesting. The majority are poisoners, which I don't find too gripping. And as a true crime fan, I'd much rather hear a story about an axe murderer than a story about someone who ate arsenic. And not that poisoning isn't diabolical. To me, it's just kind of a snooze fest. There are some really compelling female serial killers out there. Eileen Warnos, Belle Gunness, Dorothea Puente, just to name a few. I think what makes any killer story something you want to hear is what drives that person. And if it's just to get money through poison, then that to me is boring. But if it's some kind of madness or bloodlust, then you definitely have a story. And thankfully, as I searched this case, I came upon the one I'm going to tell today. It is so crazy at times that it doesn't seem real. And some of the details are straight out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon or a Laurel and Hardy sketch. And then other parts are so gruesome and sadistic, it's straight out of a horror movie. The woman I'm going to talk about is the first Australian female to be sentenced to life without parole. On March 1st of 2000, concerned co-workers and neighbors of John Price called police to his home because he failed to show up for work. When they got there, what they found inside was gruesome. Price had been stabbed to death. His skin hung up like an animal hide. Inside a stewing pot with vegetables was his head. The table was set for dinner, complete with place cards for his children, 
Dinner was about to be served, and he was the entree. His killer and cook was his on-again, off-again girlfriend. This week I'll be discussing Catherine Knight. The Catherine Mary Knight was born on October 24, 1955. Her mother was Barbara Rowan. Rowan was the name from her previous marriage to Jack Rowan. They lived in a very small town of Aberdeen in New South Wales. Jack and Barbara had four sons together before Barbara had an affair with a friend and co-worker of Jack's, a guy named Ken Knight. Barbara left Jack for Ken, and this caused a huge scandal in the very small town. Both families were very well known, and town gossip spreads like wildfire. The population of Aberdeen was only around 1800, and that was in 2016. And since it was such a black mark on the new couple, they decided to leave Aberdeen and move to Moray, New South Wales. So the four sons of Jack and Barbara didn't go. The two older ones stayed with their father, Jack, and the two younger ones went to stay with an aunt and Sydney. With Ken Knight, Barbara had four more children, and this includes a pair of twins, Joy and Catherine. Red-headed Catherine was the younger of the two. And sadly, in 1959, Jack died, and the boys he had moved in with Barbara and Ken. Life in this household wasn't pleasant at all. Ken was a raging alcoholic and very physically abusive. Reportedly, he raped his wife up to 10 times a day. And Barbara always made light of these injuries, saying her husband knocked her out for sex. She also very inappropriately told her daughters details about her sex life. She told them she hated sex and men. The abuse wasn't only focused on Barbara, though. Catherine claims to have been sexually abused by several members of the family. This included her brothers, until the age of 11. And these claims were backed up by other members of the family. And in addition to the sexual abuse, the children were also beaten regularly by their parents, with everything from electrical cords to wooden paddles and dog leashes. So it was very clearly a very unhealthy atmosphere for any child and one that was very formative for the sadistic woman that Catherine was to become. When she got to high school, Catherine led something of a double life. Part of the time, she was a model student. She received very good grades and was given awards for good behavior. But then on another side of her would come out. She developed a reputation as someone not to be messed with, mostly due to schoolyard fights with her twin sister, Joy. And these fights were savage. But just as quick, she would jump to her sister's defense if anyone directed trouble Joy's way. Even the boys were afraid of her. She was accused of assaulting one boy and injuring a teacher in a fight. So as good as she was on one end of the spectrum, she was just as bad on the other end. At the age of 15, Catherine left school, despite the fact that she couldn't read nor write, to work as a cutter in a clothing factory. After about 12 months, she left there for her dream job, cutting offal at the local abattoir, a place called Aberdeen Meatworks. At first, she was just a general laborer cleaning up blood and animal carcasses. But then she was quickly promoted to boning and given her own set of butcher knives. Her work was very proficient and precise. 
She took great pride in her work, and she kept her knives in pristine condition. Later in life, she would hang these knives over her bed. She said just so they could always be handy if needed. Co-workers recall how she would stand at the front of the production line to watch the pigs have their throats slit. Some thought it was to learn, but others remarked that she stood there for an eerie amount of time. In 1973, she met David Stanford Kellett. This was one of her hard-drinking co-workers at the abattoir. This relationship was one that she dominated. She was very forceful. One time, she even backed him up in a bar fight. And they were married in 1974. This was at her request. The couple showed up at the wedding on a motorcycle with Ken completely wasted. As a wedding gift, Catherine's mother, Barbara, gave Ken some advice. According to Ken, she said, The old gal said for me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that was her mother talking. She told me she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. Not exactly what you expect your future mother-in-law to say. But Barbara's words were right on the money. On their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle David after his lackluster performance in the bedroom. He reportedly fell asleep after only having sex with her three times, much to her annoyance. Regardless, he stayed with her, probably because she continued to live this dual life of angel and demon. He said of her, she was the most wonderful wife you could wish for, perfect mother, perfect housewife, but sometimes she would just snap like a biscuit. Even though he sometimes thought she was perfect, the marriage was one of violence and abuse. And one night in particular stands out. David was out at the local pub for a dart tournament. And Catherine called the pub at 10 p.m., urging him to come home. And he replied by saying tournament wasn't over and he'd come home when he was good and ready. These are words she didn't take lightly to. When he arrived home, Catherine was waiting at the front door for him. The heavily pregnant woman whacked him on the back of the head with an iron frying pan. As he fled to a neighbor's home, he could see that she'd also burned all of his clothing and shoes. David collapsed upon arriving at the neighbor's. Two days later, he was then released from the hospital after being treated for a fractured skull. But he refused to press any charges against his wife. Maybe due to the fact that she was heavily pregnant. In May of 1976, their daughter Melissa Ann was born. It wasn't enough to keep this marriage together, though. David ended up leaving her for another woman and moving to Queensland. He couldn't take any more of her physical abuse and this possessive behavior. And Catherine took the breakup very hard. The day after David left, she was seen walking baby Melissa in the pram, violently thrashing it from side to side. She was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth with postnatal depression for several weeks. I don't doubt that she may have had that, but obviously there was some other serious mental issue going on. After her release, she wasn't any better. She went out one day, placing and leaving the two-month-old baby on a railway line when the train was due. 
Luckily for the baby, a homeless man they called, Old Ted, was foraging for food nearby the railway line when he noticed the baby and rescued her. Some say this was just minutes before the train passed through. But Catherine wasn't worrying about the baby. She was busy threatening people in town with an axe that she had stolen. She was arrested and once again taken to St. Elmo's for treatment, only to sign herself out the very next day. A few days later, she was back at it. This time, she took one of her prized knives and slashed the face of a woman in town. And after the attack, she insisted this woman drive her to Queensland to find David Kellett. At a service station, the woman was luckily able to escape. And police arrived minutes later, but by this time, Catherine had moved on to a young boy, taking him hostage with the knife directly in front of his family. And this next part is crazy. She was disarmed when police attacked her with brooms. Why brooms? I have no idea. Whatever the case, it worked. Catherine was then admitted to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, where she shed some light onto why she was at the gas station in the first place. She went there intending to kill the mechanic who had fixed David's car, which then enabled him to leave her. And after killing the mechanic, she planned on finding David and killing him and his mother. So whether he felt sympathy for her or whether he was just rightfully frightened of her, when police told David of this, he got back together with Catherine. He moved back to Aberdeen with his mother to support Catherine. She was released on August 9th of 1976 into the care of her mother-in-law. And from there, they moved to Woodridge. This is a suburb of Brisbane. There, Catherine got a job, once again, doing what she loved at Dinmore Meatworks in Ipswich. Life continued as normal. On March 6, 1980, their second daughter, Natasha, was born. Four years later, the two split, with this time Catherine being the one to leave, moving in with her parents but not before a half-hearted attempt at suicide. She took an overdose of sleeping pills. Little after that, she was able to obtain a rented house, and this was on her own in Muswell Brook. Shortly after, she hurt her back working at the abattoir, and then she went on disability. She got a government housing commission house back in Aberdeen. But single life didn't last for long. In 1986, she met a 38-year-old miner and one-time race car driver named David Saunders. This relationship moved very fast, and he moved in with her and her two daughters just a few months later. However, he still kept his apartment in Scone, perhaps due to not wanting to settle down. She would become very jealous and throw him out. He'd move back to his apartment in Scone. She'd beg him to come back. And they would repeat this cycle over and over. In May of 1987, there was a very vicious episode in which she cut the throat of his dingo pup right in front of him. And then after that, she knocked him unconscious with, you guessed it, a frying pan. She claimed she did it as revenge for his punching her in the stomach when she was pregnant. And he claimed she was just having one of her outbursts and simply wanted to hurt him. The couple stayed together, and they had a daughter named Sarah in June of 1988. David Saunders put a deposit down on a house, which was a really big move for him. 
and then Catherine was able to pay it off with workers' compensation she received a year later. And he let Catherine decorate this house, and she used her workmanship, animal skins, skulls, horns, as well as machetes, pitchforks, rakes, and rusty traps. The perfect atmosphere for a family. They once again had another big blowout. This time, she hit Saunders in the face with an iron and then stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. He was in the hospital for three days. He went to Scone to recuperate, but then he returned home to the place that they shared together. When he got there, he found all his clothing completely destroyed. In fear of his life, he took a long service leave and went into hiding. And as hard as she tried, she could not find his whereabouts. Once he returned to see his daughter, he found out that Catherine had gone to the police to say she was afraid of him and had an apprehended violence order issued against, against him. And I'm guessing that's the same as a restraining order here in the... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The United States. And it's really ironic because he was the one who was always abused by her. His friends would have bets on when the next attack would occur. He was always covered in bruises, cuts, stitches. Once he even met them with broken ribs. Luckily for him, it was the end of the relationship. But the violence wasn't just directed at her mates. Her first daughter, Melissa, was now grown. And one time, she was drinking at a pub with her friend when her mother showed up. And for whatever reason, Catherine grabbed her daughter by the hair and repeatedly banged her head off the table. Melissa collapsed to the floor, where her mother then dragged her out of the pub by her hair to the parking lot. But the violence didn't end. She then took Melissa's head and rammed it into the side of the car before throwing her into the passenger seat. The patrons of the pub just stood there and watched. They were just too frightened to help. Melissa, however, claims not to remember the event. Catherine's next beau was John Chillingworth, who she met in a pub. Within weeks of meeting, she was pregnant with his child. This was around 1990, and she soon gave birth to their son, Eric. Somehow, they were together for three years, and he, too, of course, suffered abuse at her hands. For him, the very last straw was when she smashed his false teeth to bits. But Catherine already had her sights set on another man, John Price. 
John Price was born in 1955, and many described him as a hardworking, kind-hearted father of three. His marriage had ended in 1988 due to an affair. His two-year-old was with his ex, Colleen, while the two older children they had lived with him. The separation was amicable. When John Price met Catherine, he knew very well of her violent reputation, but it didn't stop the relationship from progressing, and she moved in with him in 1995. At that time, she had been living with her two youngest children, and John still lived in the home that he had shared with his wife, much to Catherine's dismay. It really bothered her that the house was filled with things that this couple had shared together. Just like all her other relationships, she had insecurities and felt very possessive about her mate. John was still officially married to Colleen, and he placed the house in the name of his children. This really bothered Catherine. She, of course, wanted to marry Price. In addition, she felt, in the event of a breakup, she should get a share of the house, not his kids. In 1998, they had an argument about his refusal to marry her. And to get revenge, she videotaped items that he had reportedly stolen from work and sent the tape to his boss. Now, these were simply medical kits that he had taken from the rubbish bin, but was enough to get him fired from the job that he held for 17 years. And this was a very good paying job, about $100,000 a year. That same day, he kicked Catherine out of the house, and she went back to her own home. Of course, the word spread through town. And for unknown reasons, he took her back a few months later. Catherine seemed to be something of a sweet talker. Somehow, even though she did these very heinous things to these men, they always seemed to take her back. But these are just very classic symptoms of abuse. So the romance was rekindled, but he was very hesitant to let her move back in with him. And then, of course, the fighting was back on. So much so that John's friends started avoiding him. It was just simply too much for them. In 1999, he secretly met with Catherine's former husband, David Kellett, to talk about her erratic behavior. He wanted her out of his life, but he had no idea how to do it. Kellett remembers that he seemed absolutely terrified. He said he was so scared, he was almost shaking. He was really scared. In February of 2000, Catherine stabbed him in the chest. This time, he went to the Scone Magistrate Court and took out a restraining order for him and his kids. The couple weren't really together after that, but not entirely apart. Things were progressively getting worse. One night, he told his co-workers that if he didn't show up for work the next day, to know that she had killed him. So, of course, they begged him not to go back home. But he did, and he was concerned about his kids. That night he got home, the house was empty. Catherine had sent the kids to a friend's house for a sleepover, and she wasn't home either. So feeling a bit relaxed in her absence, he decided to go to a neighbor's for the evening. Around 11 p.m., he came home and went to bed. And then Catherine came over to the house. First, she watched a bit of TV, then took a shower. Then, dressed in a sexy black negligee, she woke John up for sex and afterwards he fell back asleep. 
Around 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbors were shocked to see John's car still parked in the driveway. By this time every day, he was gone. When he didn't show up for work, his boss sent another co-worker to go check on him. So this co-worker and one of the concerned neighbors tried peeking in the bedroom window. And that's when they noticed blood on the front door and decided to call the police. Something was not right. So it was around 8 a.m. when the police arrived. They broke down the back door to get inside. And there they found Catherine Knight on the floor, comatose from a large number of pills she had taken. As they went through a doorway, one policeman noticed something hanging. He touched it, just thinking it was a wet tarp. When he pulled his hand away, he noticed it was covered in blood. What he thought was a tarp was the skin of John Price. Catherine had skinned him so skillfully that only a few shards of flesh were missing from his toes, fingertips, and chest. The skin was hung from a meat hook. And then on the stove, they found another disgusting sight. John's decapitated head was stewing in a pot along with potatoes, cabbage, and zucchini. And this pot was still warm, between 40 to 50 degrees Celsius or 104 to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. It had obviously been cooked earlier in the morning. There were other parts of him that had been cooked and placed on plates, served up with baked potatoes, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. And there were two settings at the table with notes beside each plate with the names of John's children of, on each of those. She'd intended to serve him to his kids. A third meal was found thrown on the back lawn, and it was thought that she had tried to eat it but couldn't. Police speculated on what they think happened. While John slept, Catherine attacked him with one of her butcher knives. So he awoke and tried to turn on the light and then tried to make an escape. She chased him through the house. He made it out the front door and a little slightly outside before he either stumbled back in or she pulled him back inside. She dragged him down the hallway where he bled out from his injuries. She had stabbed him 37 times in the front and back of the body. Some wounds were so deep that they extended into his vital organs. Sometime after killing him, she went to an ATM and took out $1,000 from his account. And there was an odd handwritten note on top of a photo of John. It was bloodstained with small pieces of flesh, and it read, with horrible spelling, Time you got back, Jonathan, for rapping, which I think she meant to say raping, my daughter, spelled D-O-U-T-E-R, you to Beck, which was his daughter, for Ross, for little John, his son. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. Nobody's quite sure what she was implying with this note, and none of these accusations were proven to be true. At her pretrial, her initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected. She was arraigned on March 2, 2001, on a charge of murder. She entered a plea of not guilty. Her trial was then officially set for October 15, 2001. Justice Barry O'Keefe offered 60 jury prospects the option to be excused. This was due to the nature of the photo evidence. Five of them accepted the author. 
After the last witness list was read, several more dropped out. Finally, the jury was picked. Her attorneys were seen speaking to the judge who adjourned until the next day. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. The judge had been advised of the plea the day before. At the adjourned trial, he ordered a psychiatric assessment to determine if Catherine understood the consequences of entering into a guilty plea. Her legal team planned to use amnesia and dissociation in her defense. They considered her sane, but two psychiatrists concluded that she actually had borderline personality disorder. This diagnosis would explain her severe mood swings. With this disorder, one often feels slighted when there's no issue and often jealous and possessive. And this very accurately explains what was going on with her. And even though she pled guilty, she still refused to stake responsibility for her crime. Her legal team asked that she be excused from hearing some of the facts presented at sentencing, saying she can't remember most of the events and would be disturbed to hear them. That motion was refused. And when the skinning and decapitation was described, Catherine became hysterical and then had to be sedated. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe sentenced her to life in prison without parole. He refused to fix a non-parole period. He ordered her papers marked never to be released. This was the first time this sentence had been imposed on a woman in Australian history. The judge said that her lack of remorse and the nature of the crime deserved a very severe penalty. In June of 2006, she appealed the sentence. She claimed that life in prison without parole was too severe. Justices Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham discussed, dismissed this in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeals in September. McClellan wrote in his judgment, this was an appalling case, almost beyond contemplation in a very civilized society. Today, Catherine spends her time at Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in Western Sydney. She's been there for about 17 years. While there, she's kept from knives and forbidden to have a cellmate for fear of hurting them. Her day starts at 7 a.m. From 8 a.m. till 1 p.m., she works in the prison factory making headphones. They say she's one of the best workers. Still, she's not trusted, and she's flanked at all times by four guards. Her cell is stuffed with knickknacks and lots of art. She spends her time painting, knitting, and crocheting. Her art is apparently quite good, but she refuses to sign it for fear that someone will sell it and profit from it. And her family has all abandoned her. She has no one on the outside of the prison. The guards say she's very respected by all the others, some even going to her for advice. They call her Nana. And prison is where she will spend the rest of her life. Catherine Knight seemed to live a sad life from the beginning. I'm not sure with that upbringing and her mental diagnosis that she could have ever led a normal life. And it's awful to think about all the pain she subjected the ones that that she was supposed to love. This cycle of abuse continued with the men of her life because that's what goes on. People in abusive relationships tend to return to the ones that abuse them. It's a sad reality, but they get beaten down, not just physically, but emotionally. 
And it's quite amazing that Catherine Knight didn't kill more people than she did. But it's very incredibly sad that John Price died and suffered the way he did. That poor man did not deserve that. I feel so much for his family. Not only was he brutally murdered, but the details of what she did afterward are very hard to hear, I'm sure. Cooking someone up and intending to serve them to their children is pretty savage. So that was the story of Catherine Knight. Quite a crazy one to research. Definitely a lot more interesting than a poisoner. So sorry if I mispronounced any of the towns in Australia, and I'm sure you're very happy I did not try to do an Australian accent. I want to thank everyone for listening. But I do have a very special favor to ask. If you enjoy the show, could you please go to iTunes and give me a good review? I'd really appreciate it. Getting good reviews is a part of the success there. I had one day where the podcast was recommended and I got a crazy amount of listens. It made the charts for one day. It was pretty exciting. And I'd love to get more podcast listens. I hate to ask for it, but, you know, it's part of the whole thing. So if you can take the time, please rate a review. Check us out on social media. There's a Red Rum Blonde Facebook page, Instagram. I'm on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum. I'm going to try posting more interesting articles from the true crime world on all of those. Thanks so much for listening and catch you guys next week.